The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Michelle Perrow. She is a veteran pediatrician with over 35 years of experience in acute and integrative medicine. More than 10 years ago, Dr. Perrow transformed her clinical practice to include pesticide and health advocacy. She has both directed and worked as attending physician from New York's Metropolitan Hospital to the University of California, San Francisco's Children's Hospital in Oakland. Dr. Perrow has managed her own business, Down to Earth Pediatrics, a holistic urgent care clinic for children. And for the past four years, she has been an integrative physician at the Institute for Health and Healing, which is part of the Sutter Pacific Medical Center. I became aware of her because of her recent book, which she co-authored, titled, What's Making Our Children Sick? How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It, in which she explores the links between genetically modified foods, the herbicide glyphosate, and gut health. Welcome, Dr. Perro. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been so interested in the connection between the chronic illnesses that we see escalating among our children and the connection between not only our food, but how we produce our food. And it's so refreshing to find a physician who is actually remembering Hippocrates' famous words of let our food be our first medicine. What I'd like to start out with is simply asking you first, how did you become interested in medicine? Why did you decide to become a doctor? Well, that's an interesting question, and that takes me back a bit. And the way it began was when I was 12, I was sick and hospitalized, and I did fine. And it was a small community hospital. And I just was enamored with the hospital setting, and I was enamored with the idea of becoming a candy striper. And at the time at 12 years old, I think I really loved that pink and white uniform. So I was hell-bent on getting that darn uniform, and I became a candy striper. Back in the day, we were allowed to do just about anything. At 12 years old, I was in Central Supply. I was on the book cart. I was all over that hospital. And because I was sort of a precocious kid, they let me do whatever I kind of wanted. And so I got this amazing exposure to an incredible system. And then fast forward on to that, I was a theater major in high school, if you can believe this, and I started doing shows in children's wards and hospitals. Wow. And I was involved in a group called Project Sunshine. We performed in hospital settings. And that kind of built on my initial tremendous experience in the hospital setting. So I became disenamored with theater because I felt like it was a sellout. I didn't like women's role in theater, and we could have that conversation sometime. And I decided that I would follow that initial passion of mine and go into health. And that's how I got started. Wow. I don't even know if all of our listeners remember Candy Stripers. I certainly do, but I think we're probably of the same age. What a fascinating story. And I love that you brought theater and joy into the hospital. You've got a great background. Well, 
What's interesting to me is that you started out in pediatric emergency medicine. And in your book, What's Making Our Children Sick, you describe your story where you became disillusioned with emergency medicine as well, because what you saw happening was that you were taught in medical school, pill for ill medicine. And you really didn't have much training in nutritional science. And in our conversations, you've explained how most doctors don't study nutrition. It's mostly this pill-based medicine. How did you become aware that there was a different way? Another complex answer, which I'll try to put into digestible bites and use a lot of food metaphors, which I just love doing. So that is also interesting. My first love was acute care medicine because I enjoyed getting kids better quickly, intervening. I'm very good at multitasking and solving multiple problems at once. And I also enjoy teaching young students how to think about things. And it's extremely satisfying. But as you mentioned, it was a Band-Aid type medicine because I just literally put the Band-Aids on and sent the kids home. So there was definitely a growing frustration for me because I was never comfortable with all the pharmaceuticals and the pharmaceutical approach. And that is indeed, as you so aptly stated already, the way we are trained. We get a year of pharmacology in medical school. Back in my day, we got two hours of nutrition. And everything I've learned since has been my own time, my own dime, trying to re-educating myself about food as health, food for health and food-focused medicine. And additionally, so what was happening at that time, you know, 24 years ago, I had a kid. And as most of us will experience, when you're a pediatrician, your kid will have the, probably the worst diseases or the worst <laughs> issues as mine did. And so he had some life-threatening stuff going on. And a colleague and a wonderful MD and homeopath, her name is Dr. Ifoma Ikenze, and she practices here in where I live in Northern California, said to me that, Michelle, that what I needed to treat my own son with was some homeopathic remedies. I never heard of homeopathy. New York was in the stone ages regarding integrative medicine at the time when I had just left, and this was 30 years ago. And I gave my son these remedies, and lo and behold, he was better in five minutes. Wow. And I thought, whoa, well, wait a minute. You've got to be kidding me. I'm a New Yorker. Skepticism is in my blood. And I thought, what? These little sugar pills are going to get my kid better? And he got sick again, I give the little sugar pills again, and it works again within five minutes. Hmm. That began my inquiry and curiosity because how can I close my eyes and go back or not start to expand my toolbox of studying that particular topic? And I went to school at night. I had two small children. You know how this works. Mm-hmm. I was running a practice. I was PTA chair. I'm doing all those things. I didn't know how to say no. And I had an opportunity to work with uh, Dr. Ikenze in her office, which was fabulous, And then I learned homeopathic medicine and had great results. Wow. Well, we should probably explain to our listeners what integrative medicine is. If you had to do an elevator speech and you had to explain what makes integrative medicine different from the the traditional Western model, what would you say? I would say, briefly, it is a systems biology approach slash holistic viewpoint of how the human body works in terms of mind, body, and spirit, which is different from the conventional sense that we are just not a series of organs that you patch up and work with organ by organ. We are actually a biology. We are a community. We are not only we are community within ourselves, but in our environment. And so when we treat, we treat the whole individual. When we treat an issue, we go to the root cause. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because even in my own field of nutritional science, we were trained, I think, through this reductionist 
sort of lens. Mm. And we too didn't have the holistic way of thinking. And I, as I reflect too on how agriculture is taught, there's a problem, there's a spray to kill or destroy the problem, rather than thinking like you explained in the systems model where we have a holistic view. So all of these fields are so tightly connected. And I'm so glad that you are raising questions and bringing skepticism to the fore about how we've been practicing medicine in the past. I want to dive into some of your experiences looking at food as medicine. You've got many case studies in your book. What led you to look specifically at the gut and the gut-brain nexus the systems that link together the gut and brain in terms of our immune system and our mental health and physical self. What led you to that organ system? I'd like to say that it was sheer brilliance, but I can't. I'd have to say serendipity was in my favor, Melinda. And what had happened was I was working um, in my own urgent care in my own here small town, and I was doing a blend of integrative medicine and Western treatment, uh, just running my a door. I had a little purple house that I rented in town. It was just lovely. And what happened there is I'm treating all these acute issues for kids, and I'm using my little integrative toolbox, and I began to see this alarming array of very sick kids, and kids with these chronic complex issues. And so when I say that, for example, a kid would come in with an ear infection, super common in pediatrics, right? You see a dozen of those right. on a busy day. And mom or dad would say, and it's often mom, well, gee, that's his ear infection and little Johnny, he's only a year old, has been on six courses of antibiotics. Mm. Or yes, he's on steroids for his asthma and he's only three. Oh yeah, he just had ear tubes placed and he just had his tonsils out and he's five. And this became a repetitive cry. While I'm seeing that types of issues, I started seeing this alarming number of digestive issues. Kids would come in for acute issues yet again, but the parents would report, mom would say, well gee, her tummy's always bloated, chronic constipation. My God, I can retire on chronic constipation. Reflux, findings on their exams of dark circles under the eyes. I was thinking, oh, what is going on here? At that same time, this was about 2006, I was approached by one of the moms in my practice, and she was a very pesky mom, and she was trying to stop the spray of this pesticide in Marin County, and she said, we need a doctor on board, and gosh, you'll do. And I thought, oh, my God, no way. I can't really take on one more issue. And I was very adamant of not doing that, nor did I see myself as a political activist of any kind. Children's advocate? Absolutely. Political activist? No way. I joined on with these moms because when moms tell me to do something, I tend to listen. I said, sure, I'll do it. And they dragged me along. These gals had it going on. And through these women, I started learning about GMOs and pesticides. One mom said to me, Michelle, you really need to read this book, Seeds of Deception. And I know you're familiar with Jeffrey Smith and his work. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, really? Do I have to read this book? And she said, well, what do you think about GMOs? And in 2006, I really wasn't thinking about GMOs. I didn't have a thought about it, and I declare that honestly. Yeah. I read this book, and lo and behold, I start reading about the work of Dr. Arpatpusti, which we can get into. Right. And I had light bulbs flashing off in my head that I felt that the skies above had opened. I got tapped on the shoulder and yanked from my state of stupor. Yeah. And all of a sudden I said, oh, I'm getting it now. And that began my foray into looking at the gut 
where so many of our health issues begin, as you'll know, and with your nutrition background, and understanding the complex relationship, and that began my journey 12 years ago, between connecting the dots, as you know, between food-focused medicine, health, and agriculture, and how to get people thinking outside the box, critically thinking about our food systems. Mm -hmm. And I thought, my education of just telling parents to take this or do that started to expand rapidly. And that's how it all began. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because, of course, in public health, we're taught to, when we see a problem, we don't just fix the problem. If we're smart, we say, well, what's going on upstream or upriver to cause the problem? And generally, it's a much more complex issue. It's easier to prescribe the quick fix. But you're right. I think in order to be a child advocate, we have to be politically involved, even though that might sound scary. I was a reluctant joiner in getting into the political uh, scenario. That wasn't my idea. I was really busy. And the idea of just even getting into this and becoming this outspoken person about this was not what I wanted to do. But there was no way I couldn't do it because once my eyes were open to the issue, how could I pretend to be asleep? Right. So I woke up. And then once I woke up, I'm looking around me realizing like, gee, how do I wake up all these other physicians, all my pediatric colleagues around me, good-meaning people right. who are still asleep? I began knocking on their doors too saying, hey, <laughs> hey, folks, you know, I have lots of friends who take care of children. What do you guys think? And the responses I received were pretty alarming from just apathy to hostility. And then I sort of recognized, again, somewhere in there, as things happen not necessarily linearly, but in a kind of multi-system complex way, I recognized that there was a mom's network happening out there that I needed to tap into. And I started drilling down and honing in on women. Because in my practice, I saw mostly moms, not that dads don't care or not involved. Of course they are. But where I was working, it was mostly gals. And women often are very concerned with health, education, food, all that stuff. And they were seemed to be the ones who were taking charge with this. And there was this parallel universe going on outside of traditional Western medicine. And I called it the mom's network of women really figuring out what to do with their kids with asthma and autism and figuring out gut health, and many of them knew way more than I did and were coming to me with, hey, Dr. Perro, what do you think about this or that? I'm like, well, I don't know. Let me look it up. Right. And so began my tapping into these gals because one thing we are taught in medical schools, pediatricians, is listen to the parents. Oh. When moms tell me there's something wrong, there is, and I hope to have the savvy to figure out what it is. That's wonderful. So I, I listen to women. That's what to these moms. That's what I did. Yeah. Well, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Dr. Michelle Perrow. She is a veteran pediatrician with over 35 years of experience in acute and integrative medicine, and she is the co-author of a terrific book titled "What's Making Our Children Sick." how industrial food is causing an epidemic of chronic illness, and what parents and doctors can do about it. I think it takes a big person to be able to sit back and say, well, I don't know everything, and to listen closely to what parents were telling you. And I think what happens, I think I can say this you know, personally as well as for other moms, when something happens to one of our children, we'll do anything to help them. And we go down all sorts of avenues. And isn't it wonderful to have a healthcare provider who's willing to join forces with us? 
One of the issues that we spoke about before this interview is this idea of the precautionary principle and why on earth we don't embrace it and work from that model in medical care. You know, this is something that I've pondered myself because we've known about the dangers of pesticides, for example. If you just eliminate the genetic modification question, we've known about the health risk of pesticides for decades literally since Rachel Carson, and we have great literature in pediatrics regarding pesticides and the effect on kids' health, on everyone's health. This is not new stuff. So why we're here questioning this is really just shocking. And I think your listeners who are savvy would understand that we are really not fighting the question about whether pesticides are toxic. We're fighting agribusiness. Mm -hmm. That is our battle. There's no doubt that pesticides are toxic. I can go into the effects of genetic modifications on health as well. We have plenty of good research on that. I can go into BT toxin. I can go into CRISPR. But what we're really battling is the profit-mongering, this machine, and the interrelated complex relationship with our government and the officials in government. And so that's the big issue, what we have to fight. There is no question regarding the toxicity of pesticides on health. And I'll give your listeners, if they want to say, well, wait a minute, show me the data, I say, sure. Look at the research of Dr. Brenda Eskenazi out of University of California, Berkeley. She's been studying this one group of pesticides called organophosphates in the Salinas Valley of California, which is a heavily predominantly growing region, and the effects on maternal health and poor neonatal outcomes and huge number of children with ADHD in that area. She did 19 years of research following this community. Uh, glyphosate, the one that we look at in the book, is a type of organophosphate. It's not exactly what she was studying, but glyphosate has its own issues, which we can get into. So this idea that, let's get back to your original question regarding the precautionary principle, is because we are absolutely, where scientists were under attack, we are personally attacked, our careers become destroyed. I can say that in some of our cases. We really become shooting the messenger. Mm -hmm. And so many people are afraid to speak out because of this huge agribusiness machine and what has happened to scientists and people who have spoken out or at least questioned these things and what has happened to them personally. It's not subtle. There are a lot of historical examples of what's happened to people who've spoken out about the dangers of GM food and pesticides. That's right. They've lost their jobs They have been questioned in public, made to appear as if they don't know their science or that we're even anti-science. And yet, I always find this amusing because science, of course, is based on inquiry. Do you want to go back and talk about the researcher who lost his job after he found problems with, I believe he was looking at a potato, Dr. Arpad Putsti? One of my heroes, he's my role model, and I I make a pledge to talk about him whenever I can because what happened to him is beyond acceptable criminal. So Dr. Arpad Pusti was asked, uh, he's a plant researcher, he's a Hungarian plant researcher from the Rowett Institute, and he was there for 35 years in Europe, I believe in Scotland, and he was the leading researcher as a plant biologist on natural plant insecticides called lectins. And approximately 1996, he was asked to look at GM food that they wanted to introduce into Europe. And he very meticulously designed a three-year study that he performed comparing these GMO-fed potatoes to rats and rats receiving non-GMO potatoes. He called them GNA potatoes. 
he designed um, these different groups. And just to, for briefly, for you know, the sake of time, what he found was quite shocking. He went into that research thinking that GM and the non-GM process would, would be equivalent, that he wouldn't find anything. But that's not what happened. He found that, first of all, there were intestinal issues such as disruptions in the intestinal villi lining the intestinal tract. And those intestinal villi are these little finger-like projections that are responsible for absorption of nutrients in the body. And if they're disrupted, you can actually have impaired absorption of nutrients as well as leakage of things that should not be entering your body, such as toxins and toxicants, because there are disruptions in these junctions called tight junctions. And when I saw those histopathological slides of Dr. Pusti, I knew I was looking at intestinal permeability or what we call leaky gut. And that was one of my light bulbs that I was referring to earlier. Mm -hmm. Dr. Pusti also found hyperplasia of the cells of the stomach lining, which is a precursor to dysplasia, and dysplasia is a precursor to cancer. But in addition, Dr. Pusey also found evidence of immune dysfunction, organ changes in endocrine organs such as the pancreas. He found problems with reproductive organs such as testicular atrophy, small testicles. And the biggest hits he found were to the kidneys and the liver, which have been repeated. Mm. So Dr. Pusey reports his findings. He's brilliant. You know, he's a hero to the BBC. And for two days, he, there are accolades, and he's all over the newspapers. And then what happens is very interesting. Apparently, Bill puts a call into Tony. Tony calls the Railroad Institute, and Arpad is fired. His lab is closed. He is removed immediately. He doesn't have access to 35 years of his materials, and he's just fired without mm. explanation. And Arpad went on, he went on to have a heart attack, and he, he talks about this himself, and he made a movie with another Berkeley researcher who fared a bit better, but was also under attack, Dr. Ignacio Chapella. Right. Here in my neck of the woods. And they made a movie called Scientist Under Attack, which I purchased, watched, and it's all there. These scientists speak for themselves. This is not hyperbole. This is, is not a falsification. This is not fake news. And that was the beginning of this foray into deception. Oh, and yes. attack. And so that, I think, his story, and men, there have been many since um, Dr. Pusti as well as Dr. Chapella, but I think that story so beautifully illustrates what happens when you dare speak up against agribusiness. Right. Wow. It's really disturbing. And I think we, maybe we should go back and just explain the precautionary principle. I would describe it as not necessarily having to have all of the proof but having enough evidence of concern to say, hold the horses, let's further study this particular compound or this particular food. How would you describe it? Well done, Melinda. Indeed, I agree with you. We say we have enough data to support that we need to study this further, but need to put a hold on, as you said, hold those horses, and very aptly coming out of Missouri, hold the horses. This needs further investigation, but until that time... There could be potential evidence of harm here, so we need to halt the process, investigate, until we can figure this out further. Yeah. And that was by, I think there was a group of scientists that convened here in the U.S. that put forth that principle, and we do not practice it. Yeah. I will provide a link to that definition so that people can have that at the ready anytime we want to exert some precaution ourselves. We just have about four or five minutes left, and I want to 
allow you to talk about some of the issues that you think are important. In preparation for this interview, I did go to the CDC. I looked at the rates of autism, one in 68 children. It's higher in boys than it is in girls. I looked at your book in which you talk about the importance of dietary manipulation to heal the gut and then help autistic children fare better. But let me open the floor to you. What do you want to bring forth from this book? I think if I had my druthers and I can really have your listeners um, hone in on anything which we try to bring about from my dedicated, beautiful patients who allowed us to tell their stories in the book, that complex chronic health diseases in children are common, one out of two kids. These are not rare. And they don't all have to be severe. They can be benign, quote unquote, my little fingers are waving in the air, such things as asthma and eczema and food allergies, which is literally epidemic at this point. And not to mention those neurocognitive diseases, which are so impactful on families, things like the autism that we mentioned, ADHD, and various neurologic processing disorders that were unheard of when I was studying, that these children, when addressed, can be brought back from these complex chronic diseases. And chronic, by definition, means that kids have had it for more than three months and that it's not, quote-unquote, curable. But I would challenge the traditional Western mindset and say, yes, not only are they curable, they're fixable. And parents have been doing it. The tools are available. And the cornerstone of treatment is dietary change. And that must begin with organic food, which I know we've been marginalized to be a bunch of kind of elite foodies who Mm -hmm. eat organic. And that's another very effective PR campaign on the uh, part of agribusiness. But I'd say real food should be organic and conventional food is the other. That real food is organic food that is chemical-free, pesticide-free. And that is, and if parents are unable to do that, it's unlikely no matter what great changes that I can give a family and any brilliant treatment protocols, it will not be sustainable. So somehow our families need to dig deep and we can sort this together. And I think this is going to be my next book is how we do it. And I ask families, can they eat organic? And that they don't need to believe myself or Dr. Adams. Are they willing to do their own food challenge in their own homes, go organic for four weeks, and I mean fully organic, and see how they feel? See whether the parent's IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, goes away or little Johnny's constipation gets better or eczema clears up, that they can do their own experiments in their own families and witness the changes that I've seen among patients that I've been treating, thousands of patients. Melinda, I've been at this a while. I'm old. And that's our challenge through the book. But not only to families, the other challenge that Dr. Adams and I put forth is can we call for a system, an eco-medical system, and we write about this, that we need a new paradigm shift. We didn't invent this idea where we need to balance the internal terrain milieu with our external terrain, that we are linked. We improve our own health. We improve the health of the external environment, and there are things that we can do, and that improves the health of the planet, that we're a complex, interrelated web. That's beautiful, and I will provide a link not only to your book, but also to gmoscience.org, a site that you have helped bring forth with some of the smartest minds in this field. And I just want to thank you for writing this book. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so I have to 
close, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Mostly thank you again to Dr. Michelle Perro, author of What's Making Our Children Sick, How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness, and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. We need to continue this conversation and not be silenced. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.